You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. Well, surprise, it's the producer today, Paul Roberts, or as my guest likes to refer to me, Paul Robertson. Uh, <laughs> Paul Roberts today, I'm going to be filling in uh, for Rick and trying to uh, uh, cover the ground that he normally does here on Coast to Coast. For those of you tuning in for the first time, hard to believe we might still have some first-time listeners, some newbies out there, but if you are tuning in for the first time, let me just say the Coast to Coast is a show that talks to uh, emerging businesses throughout the country, growing businesses to find out what's working in this crazy economy. How are they overcoming the odds and growing their business in what is still a very stagnant economy? And today we're uh, privileged to have with us that uh, Peter Garcia. Garcia, I, I love to hear people say it, Paul. I know. I, I, I fumbled. And here you fumbled on my name earlier, and I thought, well, I'm going to get his right. And then I realized, oh, my God, is it Garcia? or? It's actually Garcia. It's Italian. Garcia. You can call me whatever you want. Peter. We'll call you Ray. We'll call you Jay. We'll call you. Wasn't there some old comedy joke like that? You can call me Ray. You can call me Jay. <laughs> I don't know. It may be before my time. It probably is. <laughs> if it's for me, it probably is. All right. So Peter, say it again, so I don't fumble Gersio. it. Gersio. 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 Correct. Gersio. Okay. Well, they have it spelled as Gersia on here, and that's for yeah. Either or, it works. Okay. Gersio. All right. I like that. Peter Gersio. And the business, let's get that right, Graphite Machining Service. Did I get that correct? Graphite Machining Services and Innovations, LLC. Okay. I haven't the faintest, foggiest idea. I'm going to look at the website as we're talking here. What is Graphite Machining Services? I assume you make things out of graphite. That would be a good assumption, Paul. You're rock solid today. I don't know what you're doing at all. I'm, I'm flying high today. I had my Wheaties. Yes, um, we're a 26-year-old company that is really devoted to the um, rapid adoption and fruition of LED technology. Hmm. Um, we predominantly work in the graphite and carbon mediums, which are predominantly used in high-temperature applications like wafer processing. Hmm. Um, okay. A lot of people don't realize that LEDs are actually solid-state circuits. They're diodes. They're electronic devices that are all made on wafers, whether they be sapphire, silicon, or silicon carbide and basically my company is focused on uh, applications that are using silicon or like substrates to produce wafers that are used in electronic devices computer chips cell phones and of course uh, solid state lighting of the led nature so you don't make bigger things like uh, here in orange county where this show is based we used to have a lot of aerospace uh, and defense industries here and they were using a lot of uh, graphite and carbon-based materials to substitute, I don't know what they did, but in planes and stealth fighters and all sorts of space stuff, they were seemed to be going towards not just metal, but these basic sort of plastics, you know, these high-impact thermoplastics or whatever. Yeah, that's actually um, something that we delve in, although not in the, the aerospace uh, industry. For years, we were in the aerospace industry using carbon as electrodes, where mm-hmm. they would... Um, create shapes and uh, features and then use those electrodes to burn or erode steel to create impellers, APUs, things like that for aerospace. Wow. What you're talking about is advanced composites and advanced carbons, which are actually wound fibers or compressed fibers and 
a variety of matrix materials that are super lightweight and super strong. And we do um, machine those, but we don't manufacture them here in our facility. And the other one that's all the rage that I read about all the time, I'm still not quite sure I understand it, are carbon nanotubes. Do you do anything with that? Um, we're actually, uh, yeah, we're, we're starting to develop some nanotube work. Um, it, predominantly, those are, you know, next-gen technologies, and they're done by a lot of research facilities right now, but it is a rave for a variety of reasons. And what is a nanotube? It's sort of a fiber, it's sort of a hollow fiber that they grow somehow synthetically? Exactly. It's exactly, it's just what it says. It's a very, very, very small carbon tube. Um, that's actually epitaxial grown or, or grown using other methodologies. And these carbon tubes are super, super strong, and they're superconductors because of the nature of carbon, which mm -hmm. is electrically and thermally conductive. And so the application uh, realm for those pieces of material is endless, from biosciences all the way up to computing technology. And I had the opportunity to meet somebody, I don't know, 20 years ago that was a pioneer in carbon nanotubes. And I've forgotten how I met him through somebody. I, I had a marketing company, and I was doing different things. And I, I'll never forget this guy. He claimed that at some time in our lifetime, and I guess using carbon nanotubes or something like that, that you could literally grow a, I don't know, a shape, an aircraft wing, uh, a fender, um, uh, a car or something, that you could just somehow... Crystallize, you know, the, either out of crystals or carbon nanotubes or something that you could somehow run a current into a sea of this goop and out would emerge the, like something you'd see in a sci-fi movie. This thing would sort of assemble itself, and and out would come this part. And this was in Orange County or Humboldt County? Uh, this was in Orange County. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a joke. Yeah, they were smoking oh, something up, right? <laughs> Um, I don't think that's actually the case, although many pioneers in the industry had um, these great dreams of grandeur for what carbon nanotubes would become. But, I mean, realistically, 25 years ago, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking via, you know, voice over IT or no, Internet. Absolutely. So, realistically, I, I think, you know, the possibilities are only limited by people's imagination. So how did you get into this very exotic field? I take it there aren't a lot of graphite machining service and innovation companies out there. Um, actually, that's a great question. Um, I, I actually failed as a male dancer in the late 80s, and so I had to do something. <laughs> I, I heard that about you, and that's why I thought this would be an interesting uh, lead-in here. <laughs> Actually, my truth is my dad worked out at uh, McDonnell Douglas in Culver City in the 80s. There you go, right. And he was helping develop the uh, LHX program, which is the uh, light helicopter experimental, which actually became the Apaches. Hmm, okay. And uh, I was fresh out of high school, going to college, and uh, he thought it would be a good opportunity for me to learn what was making him lose his hair. And so I, I hmm. took a part-time position with him, which turned into a full-time position. And I just really enjoyed the carbon composites portion of it, but I loved the, the use of graphite and the fact that it could be a thermal conductor and an electrical conductor, and I kind of was a voracious reader and still am and just kept, you know, refining my skills and learning as much as I could from the people around me, and it kind of took off from there. And do you guys ever do anything with sporting goods? Because don't they make golf clubs and tennis rackets out of graphite? Um, they do, but the term graphite is a weird piece of nomenclature. It's really a generic term for anything that would have graphitic uh, properties to it. Okay. We use synthesized graphite, which is actually made from petroleum coke. So they take 
the byproducts of petroleum manufacturing, they pulverize it and super refine it and press it, and it becomes this monolithic material um, that has completely different shear loads and compositions than carbon composites. Hmm, okay. um, so golf clubs. Because carbon right. composites would mean that it wouldn't shear, right? That it wouldn't, it would, it, it would bend. I, that was the idea with golf clubs and tennis rackets that it would absorb the impact and it would actually bend a little bit. That is correct. Now, most carbon composites are usually their strength, their their real shear loads are, you know, all along a particular latitude or longitude, depending on how they lay the materials up. Mm -hmm. So in one direction, they're usually super strong. Um, And 3D carbon composites, which is what they're making airplane wings out of and a variety of other things, including golf clubs these days, are strong in all axes. And so basically, you and I can go out on the golf course and pound a you know, a three wood or a driver into mm-hmm. the grass and uh, nothing will happen. It'll just continue to flex. Right. If you did that with my kind of graphite, the stuff we make semiconductor products with, um, you'd surely shatter everything because it's uh, quite strong but quite brittle. Kind of like diamonds. And if you if you use a diamond in one direction, it's you can't shatter it. But if you find the right way to cut it, then it shears in half or it, it separates along some lattice, as you say, some... Some, uh, some. I don't know. I'm not using the correct terminology, but no, it, no, you are actually. It, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a lattice dislocation or a stack fall. Um, very similar to crystals and um, silicon. Carbons lay up with you know these flakes, and they have like this um, compound grain structure. And basically, they're strong in multiple directions, but it's one or the other usually. You know, it's usually strong along the XY plane and not so much around the D plane or vice versa. Right. And basically that's what happens. Carbon, um, the type of materials that we use are pretty darn close to the, you know, the hardness and the composition of diamond. And they're all made the same way through compression and heat. Well, years ago I had a client that made, this is going to sound crazy, but they took um, polyethylene and they turn and they got it in pellets, and they turned it into plastic, basically hot tubs, giant dog dishes that they would roto mold, and and so I had to learn a lot about not just rotational molding to do the marketing, but all about different polymers and plastics and whatnot. I was fascinated with how many things are all carbon based. Um, any kind of I know I know they don't like to be called plastics, but just anything that has you know graphite or um, carbon in it can can be turned into lots of unique shapes or silicon. And so those seem to be the two only two materials that form long chains of material. That is absolutely correct, and I wouldn't be surprised at all. I've seen some wacky things in my twenty six years doing that. Yeah, I mean it's amazing the 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 uses, and they're constantly coming up with new polymers to new to replace steel and other things. I know the auto industry is doing that all the time and the aircraft industries because they want things that are lighter and stronger and have different properties and some of them they want to uh, conduct electricity, some of them they don't want to conduct electricity, some of them they want to be like um, polyethylene is also they use it in milk bottles and trash cans and whatnot. It's also a great uh, sound barrier for some reason. I don't know. It is. It is. Actually, they line the walls with recording studios with these polyethylene egg crates these days. Yeah, exactly. See, I know more than I... I'm not as dumb as I look. I couldn't be. I can't tell what you look like because <laughs> you're on the radio, but um, you know, so far, you're, you're a darling. I mean, you're the, <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by all this stuff because I think there's a lot of cutting-edge stuff going on out there, and people just don't even really have a clue because... Uh, you know the science behind it isn't sort of discussed or known or whatever, 
And there's so many things that we're doing with this stuff that people wouldn't have imagined uh, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Graphite golf clubs, uh, plastic hot tubs, uh, you know, uh, graphite uh, high impact, whatever you called it, uh, the, the stuff they use in airplanes and stuff here. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing with all this stuff. So it's everywhere. So here you are with this company. What did you guys start out making, and, and has that changed through the years? Are you making different stuff now, or are you still making the same stuff you did when you started this company? Oh, no, no, no. We, we've changed dramatically. When I started um, in, in this particular company in the late 80s, early 90s, um, we were predominantly a supply chain partner to like Honeywell, who was Allied Signal at the time, and a lot of big mold manufacturers because mm-hmm. they used a lot of carbon in the manufacture of graphite electrodes. Mm-hmm. But we were really blessed here in, in our particular area, much like Orange County. Arizona was a hotbed of tech uh, with Intel, Motorola, and some other bigger mm-hmm. tech companies leading the charge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, myself and my partner Rex Dillman both had materials backgrounds in semiconductors, and we started uh, approaching these local businesses like Motorola and Intel, ASM, these other big guys, and uh, they really were in dire need of um, supply chain solutions for graphite. And so we kind of switched our model, and it was funny. It happened very quickly, kind of in line with the uh, PC revolution. Um, along the time frame of the early to mid-'90s, um, manufacturing started offshoring, especially in the mold and dye industry. Yes, going absolutely. Mexico, Canada or China. Right. And the semiconductor guys were just blowing up because of the PC market and cell phones. And uh, we were just in the right place at the right time. So we switched our model from one that would support uh, mold and dye manufacturing to one that supported semiconductors, which was good because, you know, I'm a materials guy. That was my background. And Rex is a... Uh, yeah, twenty-year Motorola guy. So semiconductors was his uh, background as well. And, and when you make that thing. kind of disruptive change to your organization, I'm assuming that it isn't just buying some new equipment to make different shapes or or different things. I mean, the process changes. Maybe even the material you're using changes. There's a different science behind what you're doing. Is that correct? Or are you still doing the same science? Um, no, everything changes. Uh, a, a mold only requires a graphite that's electrically conductive and has a fine grain size. That's typically the requirement. So you would machine something that would have uh, very exacting features, tight tolerances, and the right kind of grain and electrical structures. When you're talking about, you know, processing wafers, that's an entirely different animal. You have to have specific gravity of your material. You have to have the right structures of material, the right CTE, thermal conductivity, Poisson's ratio, you know, modulus of elasticity, all these other um, characteristics of material that nobody talks about. All this verbiage that everybody's scratching their head and saying, what what do all those terms mean? But they all have some characteristic that they're trying to describe. Correct. They're actually related directly to how a particular semiconductor device is manufactured and the requirements of the substrates we make. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, well, so hold, yeah, hold that thought because I'm going to delve into a little bit. I want to know how you make those kind of changes rapidly in an evolving market, and then we'll get into your ex- how you're successfully exporting these products in, in an era when we t- seem to think everything's been offshore and coming. We're buying stuff from offshore. You guys are making it, selling it to other people, as I understand. And we're very proud of that. All right, well, we're going to come back and talk about change and export as we uh, – Pursue our conversation with the folks at Graphite Machining Services and Innovation. 
Stick around, and we'll be right back after the break. This is the sound of a flat-screen television hurled off a building. Now the new bike your kid wants. These are the things you could have all cast into oblivion. Because when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have bought with it. Use Energy Star light bulbs and appliances, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. I got stuff to the right, more stuff to the left. Got enough stuff, but I can't take a step. So I smart stopped and took a minute to think. I need a little better spot not under the sea. With smart stop, I leave the stress at the door. Cause it's the smart old way to store. Smart stop bucks the system. Your first month's rent is just a buck. Your next three months are half off. Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station. Goodbye clutter, hello floors, smart stop. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children? At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's succession-strategies.com. Okay, we're back talking with uh, talking graphite. We're talking about uh, all sorts of exotic applications and how a company that Peter started. You started this with a partner, right? This isn't wasn't your dad, or this was somebody else? Oh no, no, my dad didn't want any part of this. <laughs> <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted something normal, Joe. He wanted to get a paycheck. All right, yeah, so you start... No, I, I had uh, two older partners that were really the the arm of the EDM portion I told you about, but right. they left the company. Uh, we took over the company in 2008. And so you started the company when? In the 80s or 90s? It originally uh, started in 84. Okay. And uh, Rex and I basically vested our ownership in the early to mid-90s. And so you were making one thing back then, and then that market dramatically changed, and you had to move into something else. Talk about right. that that change. How do you how do you how do you drop what you're doing and suddenly get into manufacturing something totally different? Because it would seem like you've not only got to buy different equipment to make different things. So there's a capital investment, but there's a learning curve. You, you're, you're not using the same goop or powder or whatever here. You're probably, and it's supposed to have different characteristics. It's supposed to be. Maybe it was supposed to be brittle, and now it's supposed to be strong, or something like that. You know, talk about some of that. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and it's a question that I've I've answered many many times in my career. Um, you know, really, I, I I you're gonna laugh, but I owe a lot of this to Mr. Ross Perot, who basically <laughs> said, "You hear that sucking sound, and you know the rest of the story." Yeah, right. It's all um, it's I, all leaving this country and going to Mexico or at that time or other places. Yeah. He just saw the writing on the wall. He saw that, you know, offshoring was going to be a way for corporate um, 
America to make a lot of money, and it was a great opportunity. But I don't think people understood the ramifications of those decisions from yeah. a very high level. And uh, we were seeing this. I mean, being in the mold and dye industry, the first place that people started offshoring was Mexico and Canada, which doesn't seem like a bad deal. But uh, especially in Mexico, the, the trade cost about 35% less, and it was cutting American manufacturers out of the market. Sure. Um, but the big one was China. Uh, yeah. China had the power to basically take over the industry, which in all essence they did. And um, we saw these great opportunities in front of us with the, the semiconductor markets. It was what we had done previously or some form of. And uh, we just tried to convince the old guys we worked with that they were marching down um, you know, a jaded path. And uh, eventually they listened once the revenue started falling off and uh, – they, but it must they, kill your pro- short-term profits for a while there because your business is declining anyway. And at that moment, you have to do new capital investment, right? Or can you use the same equipment and just change yeah, it a we bit? We started using the same equipment initially because they're CNC machines. They don't right. know what they're machining. Right. Uh, all the speeds and feeds are designated per material. So for, for us, we were already machining graphite. Machining graphite for a different application wasn't a big swing. However, all the parts that we make are coated with... Uh, a special high-temperature coating or protecting called silicon carbide, which is the CVD methodology, mm-hmm. chemical vapor deposition. And we did not have that technology at the time, so we partnered with another facility. Mm-hmm. And that facility was run by a great man, a great man named Guy Watras over at Midland Materials in Michigan. And uh, he really was our partner in the uh, fruition of our semiconductor. And how the heck would you find and partner with somebody in Michigan? You're in Tempe, Arizona, right? I made phone calls, Paul. I, uh, <laughs> I knew, you know, we had a plan. I, I talk about this often. A lot of business owners and business professionals, they don't understand certain facets of their business, so they don't understand how to mitigate risk or mm-hmm. how to you know, further the growth of the company. But we always had a plan. Once we we made a conscious decision to move from the EDM world to the semiconductor world, we instituted a plan. I wrote a business plan and what our milestones were, and we executed on that plan. And so the first thing was to make sure that we had a reliable partner for the secondary processes required for the business. But now you got to take your precious little part and ship it all the way to Midland, Michigan, and make sure that this guy you've never met coats it right and then ships it back to you so you can ship it to your customer, right? Yeah, well, I did jump on a plane. I went and I saw him, and uh, we talked openly about what was going to be required, and uh, he was in a position where you know he had the ability to do so. So for us, it was uh, mainly how to package and ship and get product back and forth in a safe manner. And was he in Midland? Because that's where Dow Chemical is headquartered. And I know there's oh, yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff back in that. I, I'm originally from Michigan, and I know there's a lot of that kind of chemical stuff there. Well, actually, if you've been to Midland, um, their facility is on Venture Drive. And as you drive down Venture Drive back out to the main road, you mm-hmm. can see the giant Dow Chemical plant. Yeah, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's there's this huge thing, as I recall. Well, they have a bowling alley at Best Buy, so that's <laughs> not not totally it. Not totally the boondocks. So it's pretty close, it's out in the <laughs> no, middle of nowhere. It's really close. <laughs> you, you can certainly see the edge of the world from there. <laughs> no, that that is correct. It is a uh, it's it's a different world going over there, and yeah, we have our own facilities and our own processes now. But all that grew up because of the proximity to Detroit and the automobile industry and Flint and all those kind of places. And they used to, you know, that, and that's why there's been a huge downturn as the auto industry has shrunk and 
almost disappeared in some of those markets. You've got all these engineering and uh, chemical companies, all these guys that made something in a car that aren't making that anymore but know how to make amazing parts and plastics and processes and chemical additives and coatings and all that kind of stuff because they did it for all those years in the auto industry. It's a constantly evolving business, the science and technical trades. Um, what, what's hot today could be not tomorrow, and I think that most of the companies that have done well have diversified and, and had great R&D budgets or, or really have been visionaries and looked forward and saw the path they needed. Now tell me the truth. Was it that easy? You just wrote a plan and, and made a few phone calls, and presto, you've got a, a reliable partner? I mean, it was no glitches, no learning curve, just that simple? Anybody can do it? Pick up a phone and you can be in partner with somebody anywhere in the world? Oh, no, it was a nightmare. <laughs> this very day continues to be. You know, the joke in my company here is that, you know, when I started, I had an afro, and today I'm a bald guy with a gray beard, and I'm 47. So, yes, no, it was very, very difficult. And, you know, you really have to be true to yourself and stay the course. And nothing that I think anybody in our industry does is easy. It's how do you find How do you find your way through this maze? Do you just do you I just happily? You just go forward. I mean, do you find consultants or or mentors or associations or other? I don't know. Do you guys ever get together and brainstorm with other people? I mean, where do you find where do you find ideas and information to help you through this maze? Because I would assume there a lot of other people have tried this and failed. Maybe not exactly what you're doing, but the idea of outsourcing some part of the production process to somebody else. Well, it begins with trust and a complete understanding of your business model. And, and that's not a joke. That's absolutely the fact. You have to understand what your company does, where you're going to excel, what the challenges are going to be, and you have to find a supply chain partner like we did that you can trust implicitly. And, uh, you know, we built that relationship before we, we really took off. The other thing is that you really have to understand what you're going to do once you get that supply chain in place. Mm-hmm. Who are your customers going to be? What are their requirements? There's there's a lot that goes into it, and that's why we talk about a plan. We understood right from the beginning that it was going to be extremely difficult to penetrate a market that's usually dominated by large graphite uh, manufacturers, people that make 900 to you know $2 billion a year in revenue. Right. And so we, we positioned ourselves as a technology company, and we still do to this thing. We weren't going in selling Me Too products. We were going in strictly as a high-tech company that was designed to move through very complex R&D uh, programs and product developments as a, basically a, a supporting manufacturing arm. So you, and, you're kind of at the front end of the curve. You're When they want to get some quick parts and prototypes and test some theories, is that where they go to you guys, or, or are you actually the then have the big production capability just to crank these out and on the other end, or you let somebody well, else do that? That's a great question, and today we have those big production facilities, but back then, um, our main focus as a company was to latch on to emerging technologies and to guide manufacturers that needed very solid engineering and quick-turn manufacturing solutions right. to work through R&D, and that's actually how we positioned our company. Because we've had other people on different shows, and they've always said that's kind of a way that little guys can get in and play in a new field, because the big guys don't turn around stuff very quickly. It's like a that's big boat. It doesn't true. doesn't move. Uh, doesn't It doesn't change direction quickly. You don't get that kind of rapid prototyping or rapid response or out-of-the-box thinking from the bigger guys. 
No, and it's not, I don't think it's their fault. I think when you get an organization that has more than 100 to 200 people, you lose some of that ability to move quickly. Yeah, you've got um, management layers, you've got uh, procedures you follow, and it just it's not set up to do that. It's set up to crank things, to, to crank out a few things in large quantities. Absolutely. We were set up completely different. We were able to, to crank out large quantities of very different things, and right. we did them all fairly well. And now you're somehow moving into the export market. And before we jump into that, we're going to take another commercial break here. Um, and I want to see how you transition from rapid prototyping into production into the biggest partnership challenge of all, and that's finding somebody overseas to sell or distribute your products or even who's interested in buying them. So we're going to talk to Peter about all that and more when we come back. You're listening to Critical Mass, Coast to Coast. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. The Orange County Business Journal has ranked Commerce National Bank the 26th fastest-growing public company in Orange County, and they remain a Bauer Financial five-star institution. President and CEO Mark Simmons attributes the success to how well the bank treats its customers and employees. Commerce National Bank simply delivers personal service at a higher level than its competitors, while offering technology on par with the big banks. If your organization could use a new business bank, call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they will handle the rest. And they handle the rest the best. They really do a good job at Commerce National Bank. I know them personally, have used them with other clients and other projects, and I can tell you that it's exactly what we're talking about, rapid response. Small organization, rapid response. So if that's what you're looking for in a bank, check out Commerce National Bank in uh, right here in beautiful Orange County. Well, we're talking to uh, Peter in beautiful Tempe, Arizona. What's the temperature like in Tempe today here? Oh, probably in the uh, lower 90s. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's a warm but nice, probably nice and clear and everything there. It's always a little hotter inland than, than it is here closer to the coast, but certainly a beautiful part of the country there, too. Um, Thank you. What I was going to lead to, I, I know we're trying to take you through this rather quickly here, and, I, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to give you another 15-minute segment if you can stick with us here because I'm so fascinated with this move from being a – you manufactured one thing, and you said, i got to get into something totally different here because the market's changing. So suddenly the way in was to become a rapid prototyper um, technology company. We'll do the engineering. We'll come up with the, the designs. We'll make a few prototypes. We'll, we'll get in and proof of concept and all these kinds of things, and then somebody else still will take over and make them in a large batch. At some point you decided we were ready to take that challenge on. So now you do manufacture these things as well as design them? 
Um, we do all of it. We work off of product designs that are existing. We work on product improvements. We work on our own engineering side, and we do mass production of products. And how did that lead you to the conclusion that we can't just sell this in this country? We have the opportunity to sell it in other countries. Well, I don't know that we were the ones that made that decision. I think the industry made that decision, again, with an offshoring uh, complement to a lot of these bigger corporations it became almost a necessity to begin to explore exporting products as a lot of these bigger companies I mentioned earlier started setting up large-scale production operators. Huge in China and elsewhere. I talk about this constantly. I know, um, you know, Steve, one of your associates, and had mm-hmm. looked at my business uh, profile in the uh, business journal, and I talk about this frequently. Um Americans have never been to China, so they don't really understand what we're faced with when we talk about competition on a global scale. Right. If you have a 100,000-square-foot facility and you puff your chest out and you're happy and you're proud of what you mean, sure. um, when I go there, you know there are 40 buildings in a, what they call a campus that are 400,000 square feet, and they're <laughs> operating. And that's the kind of competition the United States faces in terms of an export market. Some of these cities have literally grown up in the last 10 years. I mean, essentially overnight. Um, uh, and I can't even say the Chinese names, but, I, you know, uh, not just Shanghai, but some of the other cities up the coast there that have just literally sprouted up overnight. And they're throwing up these massive facilities as quickly as they can build them and the infrastructure and the ports and the docks and the rails and all the stuff to support that. We have a show here on this network called uh, the Asian Business Hour. Uh, that aired earlier today. It airs every Wednesday at 1 o'clock. And it's uh, hosted by an attorney who specializes in international law and helps U.S. companies and all the the huge hurdles that they jump through to to start selling in China and other places like that because, of course, it's not like us. It's a communist country, and it's they didn't even have rule of law until the 90s, until they... You know, as, as hard as that is to believe, there were no laws. There was no copyright protection. There was no contract and lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. It was just who you know and who you paid. And to a certain degree, still is. But I was going to say it still is uh, the Wild West, so to speak. Yeah, the, um, what do they call that? Uh, there's a Chinese word for it that you have to have this kind of juice, this kind of connection or something here. Kamsai. Yes, right, there you go. And and one of the things that I've learned in listening to that show over the last couple of years is what you were talking about earlier. You picked up a phone to somebody you'd never met in Midland, thought there might be a fit, had some discussions, flew and met them, and boom, you're in business. But in China, talk about that kind of relationship, because from what I'm hearing, it doesn't work that fast. They won't even start talking about terms and other things until you've been there a while, they want to get to know you. They want to go out and drink with you. They want to see, as one Chinese uh, gentleman on one of those sh- uh, past shows said, we're looking at the long term. If we're going to be in business with you, we're either going to partner with you or we're going to distribute your products or we're going to buy your products. We want to know who we're creating a relationship with. And we will. We want that first. And we'll move very slowly until we feel comfortable with that. And then and only then will we sit down and start talking numbers, and that drives Americans crazy. Um, It's very true for a lot of industries, but I have to be honest. In our industry, we're a very niche company, and the products we supply are very very well sought after because of their high technical uh, prowess and, of course, 
there's a fact that we're only one of five or six people in the world that make these products. Ah, okay. Well, that's a nice However, place to be. Yeah. I would agree with you that dealing with the Chinese specifically is a very touchy-feely type of uh, relationship. You you can never expect just to walk into a Chinese facility and procure an order. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, There's right. a hierarchy. In and yet, you you know, I don't have the time. I'm going to fly over. I'm going to, i got five meetings set in the five days I'm there. And I want to come home with an order or a contract or an agreement or something here. It doesn't work like that. Five days. Wow. I, I'm, I'm working 18 hours a day. So <laughs> I want to work for you if that's your Yeah, or whatever. Okay. You know, you're going to have 50 <laughs> meetings or whatever. But it's yeah. that it's that idea. Americans want to just come over and get the deal done. Okay, you look like you can do it. I see your facility. All right, let's talk terms here. Let's sign a deal. And I can go home and I don't have to come back and see you again here. It's not like that at all. And actually, if you're really planning on doing business overseas, there are a few pieces of advice I would give anybody. Please. One, most importantly, understand the market you're penetrating, whether it's China, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia. It's imperative that you understand the culture, mm -hmm. how people are paid, um, the type of business that they're running, and, of course, where your products fit in. The second, and equally as important, is understanding the regulations required to work overseas. It's not the same thing as shipping a product to Chicago from Arizona. No. Shipping internationally and, you know, doing business internationally with receivables that are 9,000 miles away is a complete... Letters of credit and admiralty law, what happens if the boat sinks and all these things and clearing customs and on and on and on here. Well, you know, the simpler one there is... Uh, are you allowed to actually export your product? Yeah, right. And and that's something that a lot of people, we've done a lot of work here, and uh, my partners at Ceridine, who are also in Orange County, by the way. Mm -hmm, yes. Um, we, we all... We would love you know, to get them on a show. I've never been able to get anybody from Ceridine on the show, and I don't know why we haven't been able to reach somebody. So if you if you have a if you have an in there, we'd love to uh, exploit it and uh, have them, uh, you know, contact us and talk to us about what they do and everything, because they're... A, perfect example of a company that's changed and grown dramatically through the years here. Fantastic company. I'll, I'll talk to Joel Moskowitz, although you understand that 3M purchased uh, Ceridine back in November on a tender offer. Yeah, that's what I heard, yeah. So things are, um, obviously, I think they're still going through some transitional changes, but they're a great company. Both of them are. They're both awesome companies, mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll see what I can do about getting somebody in. Okay, show. please, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, you know, you were you were talking about how you get there and understand these differences so again we're, we're we're racing through the last 20 years but you started off because your father had introduced you to these uh graphite based products and processes and you built a company and somewhere along the way decided whatever we're making originally ain't working we got to make something different which means new processes new equipment new technology new training etc cetera, etc cetera. And a whole new industry that's already established with lots of big players. And how you did that was you got into doing rapid prototyping, and you were the rapid response team and the and the innovators and all that. And then somewhere along the way, you decided to actually make these things in bigger production, which suddenly opened up the possibility of selling not just in the U.S. but overseas. What kind of culture change did you guys have to go through? What kind of growth and what kind of I mean, how did you change out of this process? 
Uh, we learned a lot. We learned about what it takes to do international business on, on the kind of scale we're talking about. We learned about what regulations were required. We learned about the key industries we were trying to go through. And, how, and the question everybody asks, I know there's somebody listening right now who's making a widget somewhere, and their U.S. market is depressed, and they're saying, why can't I sell this widget in the rest of the world here, particularly if it's a real high-tech, hard-to-make widget that the Chinese haven't figured out yet? They're real good at the at the low-tech stuff, but the high-tech stuff for the moment still eludes them. They don't have enough, I don't know if they don't have enough uh, engineers or enough high-tech equipment or whatever, but I've again, through this other show, we've had different people on Department of Commerce and stuff, and they say there's a huge opportunity for really high-tech, really advanced materials, processing, composites, things, medical equipment, all sorts of crazy things that they can't do yet. So there's an opportunity there. And this guy who has this widget, like you guys had a widget, is asking himself, okay, so what do I do? Just get on a plane and fly over there? No, actually, you you mentioned the Chamber of Commerce. We, we have a wonderful guy named Christian Richardson here in Arizona that works for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And mm-hmm. We had multiple meetings with him to understand what the U.S. Chamber of Commerce offers in terms of trade and commerce mm-hmm. um, assistance. And one of the key takeaways we got from that is that you're almost you're almost acting in a futile manner to go over there and jump on a plane and try and procure business. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. The easiest thing that we were able to do was to kind of work through some of the representatives that were already in those areas that mm-hmm. were interested in picking up new product lines so that we had a partner or representative in the territories that we go to. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, that was the key to getting rapid penetration in the market because we were working with either Chinese nationals, Taiwanese nationals, Korean nationals who had either worked at these companies and decided to spin off their own companies right, or were basically manufacturers representatives for foreign companies that that's all they did is they represented foreign interest in uh, these particular areas. Mm-hmm. The key really is to have somebody that speaks the language and understands the industry better than you do, because mm-hmm. quite honestly, there's nobody better to show you than someone that's lived there their entire life. And one of the things that I've been surprised at, and I don't know if you guys, you went through the uh, local chamber, the Department of Commerce um, actually has some very innovative programs where they will, I don't know, for hundreds of dollars, they'll do the research over there and, and tell you who the players are and who the distributors are and the manufacturers. Are. They'll, they'll lay it all out for you and introduce you to some of these people. And I forgot what they call it, but it's... it's there's The a, Gold Key Program. Is that what it is? Okay. And Yeah, that's actually, I said Christian Richardson, he actually works at the U.S. Trade and Commerce Department. We didn't go hmm. through the local chamber of commerce. Okay. And then uh, on top of that, if I'm not mistaken, then they've got even some programs, maybe it's just for certain products, where they'll actually guarantee that you get paid up to a certain point because that's everybody else's fear. I'm going to ship this stuff over and I'm never going to see the money and or I'm going to get ripped off or something here. and Oh, that's in one of the things that I uh, I thought we would talk about, which is uh, basically receivables insurance. And yes, the U.S. Trade and Commerce Department offers several programs through private insurers or third-party insurers, where you basically are insured up to 85, 90 percent of your receivables outstanding. Yeah, now that's got to be huge because how you're dealing with businesses far off. What's your alternative? You know, if they screw you, you can't go over and sue them. It's a different legal system. You don't speak the language. And up until recently, the the U.S. companies haven't been very successful in winning in the Chinese courts. Uh, 
and and that seems to have changed a little bit. I, I, I hear you know some. I think Microsoft won a case and some others have over there, but by and large, you know that's the fear everybody has. Is I'm just I'm shipping this stuff into the darkness, and I don't know if I'm ever re- really going to get paid here. And it's a very viable fear. It's a very realistic fear, and that's why you know it's really important to understand the market. Like I said before, uh, understand the clients, how the culture works, how you're getting paid. Because without that, you're basically shipping stuff into the abyss. Yeah, right. And and crossing your fingers here and hoping that it that it works out. So it was the U.S. Department of Commerce that you went through, and you went through some of these programs, and that really introduced you and got you started. Kind of. Um, they gave us a great roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we had already met people who were calling us. Um, again, we're in a niche market, so there were a lot of people overseas that were calling us to ask to be our representative. And so what we did is... Uh, we did some fact-finding missions about flying out there, seeing who these people were, who they were representing, who their client base was, who they were willing to go to and penetrate. And, uh, you know, it took a long time. It took about a year to put the groundwork for wow. what we were going to do together until we had, you know, trusted representatives in these areas so before we ever sold the product. So it's not just a one-trip-and-done deal here. you gotta, you got you to gotta put some... In- upfront investment and time and energy and research and understanding. Uh, this attorney always says you should really fly to the country once and just be a tourist once and just kind of just get a feel for even what they're doing. And that's, that's something most businesses don't want to do. I don't want to go over there for five days and just feel my way around and try and get a feeling for the place here before I even make a contact. I'm there. I might as well call up six guys and let's cut a deal. I don't disagree with the attorney, actually. I didn't take that route because I was uh, in a different situation. Um, people were already contacting me, so I understood my market very clearly and where I needed to be. I wanted to go there and see who these people really were. And for mm-hmm. me, um, I would agree with that attorney that the best thing that our company ever did was send me over to these different places in Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, Singapore, China. Mm -hmm. So they understood what I was dealing with. And I I have to be honest with you, as an American who had never been to Asia, it was such an awakening. I I really can't put it into words. That could be a whole show about that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, the Samsung or, um, you know, in Taiwan, like the Epistar Group, who's a huge LED manufacturer, just the scope in China of factories, it was mind-boggling, and it really gave me a clear understanding not only of what I was uh, expected to do to assist these clients, but also what my country, the USA, was up against in terms of uh, you know trade and, and commerce. And oh, it was, well, uh, and on every level, I mean, you've got people that were peasants, literally, and willing to work for 20 cents an hour at one point. I don't think it's quite that cheap anymore, but the further inland you go... Uh, uh, making things, and that you know, how can we compete with that? But at the other hand, it's hard for them to make really high-tech precision things because they don't even know what they're making. These are people that have no that. clue what they're assembling something based on a picture or process, but they don't. They they haven't a concept. The individual, the poor worker on the line, doesn't has never seen these things. Yes, I I disagree with you in the sense that they don't know what they're doing. I have to be very forthcoming and say that the people, and I've been all throughout Asia, the people that I've met in Korea, Taiwan, and China are usually U.S. educated. Mm. Um, they're very smart people, very industrious people, and they hire 
fairly intelligent people as well out of the universities, either in those countries or from the United States. Mm-hmm. The workers that you're talking about that make 20 cents an hour are making like plastic toys or yeah, right. small electronics. But the high-tech business, the iPads, the iPods, the Foxconns, these are people in the tech field that usually work for American companies and brought their know-how and their education back to their countries. So the people that we're competing against and the people that I work with, I have the utmost of respect for. Um, they're extremely intelligent people and very, very capable of of producing and manufacturing extremely high-tech devices. Yeah, I don't mean to, uh, to put down their capabilities in any way, shape, or form, because clearly they are doing incredible things. I mean, Apple doesn't make all their stuff over there for, for no reason. It's not just because it's cheaper. They really have the technological capabilities to to meet or exceed our standards as well here. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, it's such a rapid change in this country. I mean, you've got people who are working in assembly lines that a few years ago were working in fields, you know, and suddenly this massive cultural shift is going on over there, and they're very quickly um, learning how to do these things. And in the beginning, they had a lot of quality issues because they didn't quite understand the process. And, and, and Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a true statement. And uh, to some degree... Even in the high-tech world, you can park $10, $20 million worth of um, government-sponsored equipment on the floor and have a great engineer that, you know, has a lot of experience, but it still takes a lot to get it off the ground. And right. There's a lot of a lot of learning curves. The thing is, is that the culture in, in Asia specifically is one that it's a can-do attitude. It yeah. reminds me very much of the U.S. in the 20s, 30s, 40s. There's a high level of expectation, and it's usually met. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a high level of frustration because there's a lot of pressure to meet those demands. Yeah. So they they work, geez, probably ten, twelve hours a day. Yeah, in human hours. I mean, they're willing to do anything that we we just aren't even willing to consider anymore. Here, we want our coffee break and to stop by five o'clock. Here, we are a bit spoiled, but I have a feeling that. Uh, the culture here in the U.S. is changing as well. I, you know, I run a company that employs 26 people, and a lot of them have never worked in this field. And I'm very encouraged and surprised at the level of hunger to succeed in the in the teams. And Good. The well, that's encouraging. That here. That's encouraging. So, my last two, I got two questions for you. The next to the last question is, why aren't more people doing this? And I'll preface that by saying. I think it's, I'm so frustrated having done so many shows now with this export import thing and we've done some other shows about entrepreneurialism and whatnot. I don't even think most Americans realize that under President Obama, whether you think he's a good guy or bad guy, they did chart a course to double the number of exports from the U.S. to other countries. They've, from what I gather, have come close to almost doing that. I guess it wasn't that hard because we weren't exporting that much stuff. So, you know, we didn't have to jump up that high to double it here. But the point is, there are a lot of government programs in place. There's a, a federal initiative and a push to do this. And yet, I don't hear anybody, including President Obama, really play this up very much. It seems like this could be the way out for all of us. I'm not saying everybody can sell overseas, but we have so much knowledge, particularly in high-tech fields like yours. Uh, here in Orange County, it's uh, biomedical is the big thing. Other parts, it's uh, new types of green technologies or other things. And we have the the technologists, we have the uh, the people creating this stuff, and that's something they still haven't, they're hungry for over there. They're hungry for uh, 
high-tech medical equipment that, that their aging population needs. They're, they're hungry for high-tech uh, metals and, and plastic processors and all this kind of stuff. And yet, I don't know why aren't more people doing it. Don't know if you really want me to answer that. <laughs> yeah, I, really right. do. I don't agree with what you said. Okay. In terms of the government supporting and doubling the exports, I, I think when you talk about that, you're talking about politics. And okay. I, you know, this isn't a political show, but I mean, realistically, when we talk about exports, we're talking about exporting grains, cars, durable goods, things like that. Right. When okay. you talk about exporting technology, a company like Siemens or a company like mine that would have proprietary equipment is, is very nervous about sending high tech over there because there aren't the copyright laws that you think intellectual property right you get ripped off right yeah yeah so you send over a giant piece of medical equipment let me tell you the, the people that are there are very smart they will dismantle it figure out how to build it and right down the street they'll build one of their own and hmm. so there's a great risk in uh, ip theft and ip protection and i think that's one of the things that keeps people from moving high tech over there but isn't um, somebody going to, I guess the, the theory is they're going to buy it from somebody. They're going to buy it from the French, the Germans, the Japanese, from somebody here. Because there's such a demand for these things over there. They do. And there are certain things that are not as easy to uh, to dismantle and recreate. Replicate, others. Yeah. But I think ideally, some of the real high-tech stuff, there's still a fear and trepidation that they can't protect their IP. Hmm. From a product service portion, which I recommend highly, there's a lot of people that need supply chain partners around Asia. And I think ideally those are the people that would greatly benefit from understanding how to export, getting involved in a good program that's put on by the U.S. Trade and Commerce Department and getting representatives to help assist them in moving their products overseas. Interesting. Well, we're um, uh, almost out of time here. How do people get in touch with you? And would you be open if somebody called you up and said, I got a widget shop in Orange County or elsewhere, and would you spend five minutes and give them a place to start or some contacts at the Commerce Department or, or, or any oh, tips? Oh, of course. Yeah, I, hey, I'm, I'm pro-American and I'm pro-U.S. and I'm pro-economy. So anything I could do to help others succeed, that's really my goal here is to well, share. Good, because we're big on sharing. We, we think that we all grow through sharing and learning through the experience of others. That's the whole purpose of this station and this show in particular. So how do people well, get in touch with you? I'm more than happy to do so. How do they reach you? You can contact me at peter at graphitespecialists.com. Okay, and graphite is spelled G-R-A-P-H-I-T-E. Correct, and specialists is plural. Right, okay. Specialists with an S Correct. at the end. Okay. Specialists. I'm from New York. I don't carry those S's. <laughs> okay. All right, good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to share some of this with us. I know it was just a real quick, breezy journey through this, and we'll probably have to have you back at some other point in time. If not on this show, maybe I'll, I'll pitch you to the producers of the other show here about the Import-Export Show, because they're always ta trying to find people who are can give some real-life examples of, of, of the uh, obstacles, not just the opportunities. We all know there's an opportunity there, but the obstacles. Why aren't more people doing it? It it's, can't be that easy. If it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. So you must have figured out something, or you must have I had... I got lucky, and I had a good staff around me. And uh, Yes, it's very difficult, and you have to be very prepared to execute on a plan. A plan is the key. Good. Okay. Well, um, I will plan to have you back then at another time here. How about that? 
And I will plan to be here. It was a pleasure having you, and uh, thanks again for the opportunity. We appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us. All right. Well, that's it, folks, for today. Um, we're all out of time, and uh, we would uh, encourage anybody who wants to learn more about the collaborative peer group process to check out Renaissance Executive Forums. We have forum leaders all across the country, and it's that idea of bringing different businesses together to brainstorm, share ideas, open up, and you get a, a, a peer network. You get a you get an unpaid group of, uh, of advisors who have absolutely no reason not to tell you the unvarnished truth because they hope that you'll do the same for them. Forums all across the country. Thanks for listening, and uh, join us again tomorrow uh, for um, more, uh, I'm sorry, next week for more interesting conversations here on Coast to Coast, and we invite you to stick around for the coaching perspective with uh, Master Coach Doug Gefeller coming up right after this. You've been listening to Critical Mass Coast to Coast right here on Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.